0: welcome to the heart rate variability podcast in this podcast we discuss the exciting science behind hrv and how you can apply it to your own health and the work that you do just a note this podcast does not replace medical advice and if you're going to apply this to your own life or others please consult with a medical provider thank you and enjoy the show Welcome to the Trauma informed Lens Podcast. I'm Matt Bennett and today I'm flying solo. Uh, I'm flying solo to introduce a series that we're going to do. Um, that goes sort of in the way back machine, way back to 2018, uh, when I first got introduced to heart rate variability. And um I this is uh, episodes from my other podcast, the Trauma-Informed Lens Podcast, and um, uh, for for the few uh, about hundred episodes, I had two great uh, co podcasters, uh, Kurt Moyer and Dr. Jerry Yeager, uh, both experts on behavior, stress, trauma, mental health, uh, peace, and obviously we go from a trauma perspective. But I think it's this is really useful for anybody who's interested in the connection between uh, heart rate variability and stress. And so one of the fun things about these episodes is you go back to when I didn't know anything about heart rate variability. I'd heard about it a few times, um, but I hadn't really heard about it. So you can kind of watch my own progression go through. I also wanted to bring this series uh, to our heart rate variability podcast listeners uh, because we go deeper into some peer reviewed journal articles uh, and really dive into a lot of interesting parts around the HRV resource. So I I really, Jeff and I both agree that it would be really fun to bring these in from time to time to really supplement uh, folks learning who tune into this podcast. So um, again, a little bit change up on energy um, with this, but Kurt and Jerry are great thinkers you get to see me as someone who basically knows nothing initially about the topic and kind of watch me realize that everybody in the world should be on an HRV monitor. So, uh, I hope that's fun for you all too. So hope you enjoy this episode. Again, this will be, uh, we'll splash these in throughout the next few months and, uh, hope you enjoy and really help supplement the learning. Right, I'm going to just hand it over to you, my friend, uh, with that Bronco voice of yours. Uh, And uh, introduce this topic to us a a little bit, uh, uh, again, to set up our exploration for for the next few weeks.
1: Sure. I'm going to back up a little bit and kind of talk a little about how this got to be a really interesting topic to me that has been one that's, um, I've really just enjoyed researching it and learning more about the physiology of the stress response and especially heart rate variability as I kind of, kind of like, pulling a thread on a topic, you know, you just kind of keep going through it. And I'll go back to kind of where that started for me. It was early on when I first became involved with Jerry. And Jerry, if you remember, we went to a, a conference or a talk down in Colorado Springs that Bruce Perry gave, you know, the big room of 500 people. And the thing, the one thing I remember besides he was very entertaining and, and, and great, a great speaker at the kind of the end of the talk, somebody said, asked him a great question and said, if you could pick one thing that was indicative of recovery from traumatic experience, what would it be? And he said, heart rate. And I took that away from that talk and I was like, well, I should learn more about that then. And, and so, and I always had a, a kind of an interest in physiology and neurobiology. That was a part of my undergraduate and graduate training in addition to behavior analysis and so it kind of fit with what, what what my interests were and so i really just kind of dug into that and i had the pleasure of being able to ask jerry all kinds of questions and you know be taught by by uh, somebody who really is truly an expert in in uh, in the field of trauma-informed care so i'm really grateful for that but i started really going into why would heart rate be such a robust measure that would Tell us whether or not somebody was was positively recovering from from traumatic experience, and it led me into, of course, the the autonomic nervous system, and that led also into the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis, or the HPA axis. So those two structures of our body um, really help us as living organisms to adapt in them on a moment to moment basis to our environments and deal with environmental demands that come up in addition to that they also help us to develop long-term strategies like they the, those parts of our biology can adjust based on our experiences so that they're better able to adapt in the moment so i was really fascinated with the, the robust adaptive nature of both of those systems in our body And that also, from a philosophical standpoint, that idea of having an internal mechanism, that we have a really pretty good idea of how it works, and we'll find out a lot more, I'm sure, about how this whole system works. Also, it fit very well with my training in behavior analysis. Now, that's a very function kind of contextual-based philosophy. And so having an, an understanding of what was happening inside of the skin of a person or another organism that then changed how they interacted with and reacted to their environment was a really powerful concept for me. So I got really interested in this. So we'll kind of talk a little bit about how the autonomic nervous system, what its, what its functions are and how it works. I apologize in advance to anybody who's a physiologist and knows way more about this than I do, but I'll give it a kind of a simplified overview. So basically, the autonomic nervous system is the part of our bodies that activates our, our, whole, our whole body in order to deal with environmental demands. And it's also the part of our bodies that puts a brake on that arousal system. So it has two divisions. One division we call the sympathetic, the other we call the parasympathetic divisions of the autonomic nervous system. The sympathetic division of the ANS is the part of our body that is the gas pedal on our arousal system. So when we, we use an example of, say, uh, Jerry, once when we've used a lot the saber-toothed tiger, you see a saber-toothed tiger, then that activates your autonomic nervous system. So that visual stimulus gets integrated into your body, and all of those signals start to then activate your body to be able to deal with this demand that's in the environment saber tooth tiger is a good example because that can eat us. And so it's a very visual example of why we would need to be activated and, and ready to either to fight or to flee in that moment. That's the sympathetic division of our autonomic nervous system. It makes our heart rate go up. It makes our pupils dilate. It makes our respiration go up. It helps to shut down things like digestion, things that we body systems that we don't need get shut down and systems that we do need get activated as we get ready to deal with environmental demands. Now, you can see that if that got escalated and just kept going up and up and up without some kind of a governor on it, some kind of a break on it, our heart rate could just keep going up and up and up and up. And indeed, there are some disorders related to that misfunction in our physiology that are really dangerous. And so what we needed is a balance on that system. And that balances the parasympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system. That's the break. So the parasympathetic division, it, it, it's, a, it, its function goes through basically a, a nerve we call the vagus nerve, which is directly um, connected from the brain to the heart, a couple of nodes on our heart specifically. And that, that vagus nerve then, it takes information from how we're uh, actually viewing or perceiving a situation and then it incorporates signals down to our heart and our arousal system that really kind of governs whether or not we're going to continue becoming activated or whether or not we need to titrate that activation. So the balance between those two things is really critical to our functioning. If they get off, we get all kinds of problems. And another kind of interesting part that came out of my research on this was a a special issue of the Journal of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology that was published in 2015. And it was highlighting some research domain criteria put out by the National Institutes of Mental Health. And all of these research criteria were about, not about evidence-based practices. As Jerry, as you've said often, we know, we know evidence-based practices work when we do them. Whether we can do them or not is a different issue, but when we do them, we know that they work. Well, what the, the RDoC says was, We don't really want to do research on evidence-based practices anymore. We want to understand the physiology or the mechanisms underlying these behavioral health systems for which we're developing evidence-based practices. And so this whole article came, or this whole special issue with several articles and it came out and it was all about uh, the physiology underlying behavioral health symptoms. And interesting, what they had kind of proposed in, in some of these articles was that with the exception of conduct disorder, antisocial personality disorder, every behavioral health related symptom and diagnosis could be traced back to an imbalance between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic divisions of the autonomic nervous system. Impulsivity, depression, anxiety, all of these kind of things that human beings experience are, can be talked about in terms of the way that our brain and our body adapts to when this balance gets off.
0: Or did that also scu- uh, include the schizoaffective and schizophrenia, th- those sort of things as well?
1: In a lot of ways, it did. And it also talks about some of the deficits that happen with developmental disabilities mm. related to the impulsivity, related to those diagnoses, are related to this imbalance.
0: Fascinating.
1: So as I you know, think back to the wisdom of Dr. Perry saying heart rate, like think about heart rate. When we go through all of this all of this literature i'm like wow that was a really pretty that was a pretty robust measure to go with heart rate so that's really kind of how both of these systems then are operating and interesting about them it there's a whole other literature here uh related to athletic training that is a really interesting corollary to this research on behavioral health and actually that that the literature on athletic training is actually a little more well-developed than the literature on behavioral health. Mm -hmm. And uh, trainers have been using heart rate variability or this measure of the balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system to help athletes train more efficiently. I'll give you kind of an example to, to highlight it. I think it's a good example for understanding how this balance works. So in order for an athlete to improve performance or fitness in any way, whether it be uh, cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, any of those, endurance, any of those kind of fitness categories, it requires that you put uh, a level of stress or a load of stress on your body and that you put the right amount of stress onto your body and then you recover. And it's the balance between those two things and the timing between those two things that predicts and determines how, much athletic uh, performance you can gain. And so that was a lot of guesswork before about the late 1990s. So how much to recover and how much load to put on the body was a a lot of guesswork. You'd go by feel, right? People would say, how do you feel today? Do you need to do a rest day today or can you do a hard day today? And it was all based on subjective feeling. Well, when they went into looking at this uh, measure of, of uh, related to our heart function which is heart rate variability which I'll explain in exactly what that measure is in just a minute what they got was a physiological measure that was not subjective so they could now tell an athlete today is a day to do a hard day You've recovered. it's leg
0: day whether you like it or not right
1: right <laughs> or you cannot go hard today you're not recovered so and they did this by measuring this balance between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system. And that's heart rate variability.
0: So you you could see that even like the day after a hard workout that the heart variability would not, if you needed a rest day, the heart rate variability would not go back to sort of baseline. Right.
1: Wow. Right. right. Your balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic divisions would not recover to where it was at its optimal balance. Hmm. i right. so, the way that these two systems operate is that they're both what we call tonically active. They're both active all the time. They're just balancing one another out. If they get out of balance, one pushes the other a little bit higher. And so if you don't have enough parasympathetic activity, we call this vagal tone, Mm -hmm. which is a great word. You think about muscle tone and it's developed very similarly. You can actually develop vagal tone or parasympathetic balance by going through fluctuations of work and rest in the same way that you do weightlifting. Mm-hmm. You can develop this this ability. So if they get out of, out of balance, then the sympathetic starts to keep driving uh, our arousal system up. And so you'll get lots of overtrained athletes that have very high levels of sympathetic activity and not enough parasympathetic activity. And that's the pathway to overtraining burnout and injury. Hmm. So getting that right, and apply that right to our worlds of constant stress, even, you know, the things we've talked about with with children who undergo an experience, adverse childhood experiences, they then have their sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system becomes upregulated and not in a state-dependent way, it gets, that becomes a trait. And so that gets upregulated all the time. Sympathetic activity is up, which has a cascade of effects, including cortisol, which comes from the HPA axis, which has some different differential effects, but they have high sympathetic activity, low parasympathetic tone. Mm -hmm. So when they get stressed out, they live at a high level of sympathetic activity and there's no, there's not enough break to bring it back down. So there's no recovery. I know one way to even think about this from a behavioral health standpoint is uh, the idea of what happens when somebody gets hospitalized for psychiatric symptoms. If there's not enough recovery, uh, but within about six months post-hospitalization, it's considered to be a part of the same episode and it's just getting regenerated because you didn't get recovery all the way. So you get behavioral health symptoms activated and it perpetuates itself for a long, long period of time, unless you can truly recover, uh, which when you go to that athletic training kind of literature is restoring the balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic activity.
0: So let me, let me ask you this question. So, so we're talking about variability here. I think it's easy for me to see, okay, we've got, if I can break it down very simple, the, the, the parasympathetic or the sympathetic nervous system is sort of the anxiety that the can activate the fight or flight response. Uh, parasympathetic kind of calms that that down to some extent very simply put but where I I think I get that from maybe if I'm just thinking about heart rate especially as an athlete you're training you know your heart rate is going up You, you see all those charts in the gym about the older I get like the my heart rate's supposed to be less and less when I work out you know but so so what's the what's the variability of all this have to do with anything
1: it's a, it's a great question. So when you look at heart rate, heart rate is measured in beats per minute. So that's, say you have a heart rate of 60 beats per minute. Um, that means there were 60 beats of your heart in one 60 second period of time, obviously. Now, there, because, just because there are 60 beats in that minute doesn't mean that there's one beat every second. There's a difference in the delay between each beat and the interval between each beat. So it may vary between a third of a second, sometimes up to a second and a half. And that variability is what we call heart rate variability. So essentially think of statistics, that's a standard deviation. That's the the average variability or the average duration between beats of your heart is a heart rate variability measure. And there's some really kind of, fine, fun, I love this kind of stuff, and not everybody loves the math of it, but I love the math of it. There are different measures that you get based on how frequently you measure heart rate variability. And so this is frequency in Hertz kind of measure. So the more you measure something, the more variability you can actually detect. You may just not be measuring frequently enough to detect certain aspects of the the variability, right? So the more you measure, the more the more variability you can actually detect and that more you measure versus different frequencies of measurement give you either parasympathetic activity or sympathetic activity so you can measure them both with the same measure of heart rate variability it just depends on how frequently you take a measurement and So it's really it's i mean I, like i said i could go into the, the it's really pretty fascinating to and you, know, you you need dive into it um <clears throat> So that's what heart rate variability is. And heart rate variability is is really showing to be one of those measures that can tell us things in more extended periods of time, like recovery from a stressful event Mm -hmm. from day to day. It's also uh, being um, shown to be a measure that is predictive of things like affective instability in daily life, or that if our heart rate variability gets low, meaning there's not much variability in intervals between beats. And when you take the math of that, that means that your heart rate is higher. Hmm. If your heart rate in beats per minute gets higher, there's less variability that can actually occur because you have to fit in more beats per minute. So variability will go down. The, the, the The higher your heart rate variability, the lower your heart rate. So you want high heart rate variability, low heart rate, that's indicative of a good parasympathetic balance. Okay. Which is so a, all right, variability a tough, is I still quick. get. I still get tripped up on high. <laughs> <rate>. <laughs> but low variability means high heart rate. But they're very
0: closely correlated with one another because right, if, if the beats are quicker there's less room for variability right, within that right, so you're, you're not measuring this on a, a fitbit per se
1: you aren't although a lot of heart rate monitor the real fancy heart rate monitors now you can extrapolate an ekg signal from the heart rate monitor and you can get heart rate variability from it okay there are also some training products for athletes that will measure the beat to beat intervals in your heart rate by measuring capillary changes in capillary flows in your fingertip. Mm. And you get a heart rate variability measure. I've actually used one, it's called the iThleet. It's pretty cool actually, you plug it into your iPhone and every day it gives you a green, a yellow or a red signal based on your uh, comparison to your baseline heart rate variability of whether or not you've recovered from a workout the day before or not. Wow. Really fascinating. But so as you connect these things to the way that in, within the, the model of the arousal continuum, it changes the way that our brain functions. As our, heart, as our arousal system gets up, we, get, we, we have the ability to use different parts of our brain. And so if we get, if we're in the, in the alarm stage, then our ability to think into the future is diminished we get really focused on the here and now. We we get much more, uh, the, the limbic areas, emotional areas of our brain, the activity areas of our brain get, get much more activated than the cognitive or prefrontal cortex areas of our brain. And so we think and perceive things differently. And that's one of the most fascinating things that we can kind of get from this heart rate variability is that as we look at um, what a, say, a, I'll give you the example since I've used this so much, a child in a, in a residential treatment center, and I've also now used this with adults with intellectual disabilities in um, community placements. As we look at their heart rate on a day to day basis, we get to make different decisions about what kind of experiences they're likely to benefit from therapeutically that day. Mm-hmm. And so if their heart rate variability or their heart rate is high, then they're not likely to benefit from cognitive intervention. They're much more likely to benefit from regulatory intervention to restore the parasympathetic balance. And they might be able to do a little bit of regulatory intervention, or uh, sorry, relational intervention. But that-
0: This is kind of the relate or or regulate regulate, relate relate mm -hmm. that we've talked about several times in the past.
1: You can can make some informed decisions on a a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. What's likely to work today? So there's there's a lot of implications and a lot of applications for this information.
0: So you so know, as a behavioralist, here we go, here we go. I got, I got, I got. so as a behavioralist, you know, who, who's, you know, just to stereotype you as I love to do throughout these episodes, who who's so focused on the environment. Really, if you don't know what's going on with in the skin your behavioralist intervention, and I'm picking on you, but this is all of us, might not even, and I, I think what we'll talk about with trauma that you may see and think somebody's regulated, but really they might be not, is is that we don't really have sometimes, at least until technology gets there and, and our thinking gets different, we may not really have the information we need uh, to understand if our intervention's appropriate for what's going on biologically within the individual.
1: It helps us to have one more piece of information to make better decisions. Yeah. And it's not that people are really screwing things up horribly, everybody's <laughs> yeah. doing the, the best that they can, whether you're a behaviorist or you're not, we're all doing the best that we can. But it's, it's one more piece of information that helps you to make a better decision. Great. The interesting thing from the, from the behavioral perspective course it's very contextual in the, in the behavioral world and we're always looking at relationships between environment and behavior mm-hmm. which is really useful it's a really useful thing to do it, yeah. it's way better than not yeah what this gives us is one of the things we kind of get out of those kind of that contextual approach is that we do a function-based assessment so our our question is what function does this behavior serve in this environment
0: mm-hmm
1: And one of the things that this added information puts onto, overlays onto that is what happens with this individual that changes why this would function this way in this environment, right? Why would, so here's the classic example we get is attention-seeking behavior, right? We hear this word all the time, everywhere, whether you're a behavior analyst or whether you're not, I hear it all the time. And so that's a question where people say, well, this is attention-seeking behavior. And the question they ask is, how do we change that behavior? But the, the question to ask before you get to that is, why is, it, why is attention such a powerful reinforcer?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Why is it that attention has been established as such an important thing that this person will engage in really crazy-looking behavior in order to gain access to attention? Mm-hmm. That gives us another layer of understanding on top of that function-based assessment to help us to understand what to do next. Great. But that that takes a lot of of, of uh, really complicated stuff. Mahari variability is a lot of math. It's a lot of like understanding random events, and it which is a lot of fun for me. I, yeah. Not everybody finds that fun, but I find it really enjoyable.
0: Jerry, I want to get your, your thoughts on this because uh, I, I see you just smiling uh, down there on the screen. But, but I want to make sure that we, we sort of, before I throw it over to Jerry's insight, kind of, kind of wrap up uh, because Kurt threw a lot of great stuff at us. So, Kurt, if I'm hearing you right, if my heartbeat is rapid – That probably means my HPA axis, hypothalamus, pituitary gland, adrenal gland is activated. I'm more likely to be fight or flight or at least a hyper aroused sort of state. Check that box. Okay, if my heart rate is slower, it has more variability, and there might be some complexity that we're going to explore within that variability, would that be...
1: Those, those two things are, are really highly correlated with one another. Talk uh, to in, me. Like, so it, it, it just doesn't mean that you can't have higher heart rate variability with a higher heart rate. It is possible. It's just okay. not very probable. So if you're going to make a guess, guess that if you have high heart rate variability, you have a low heart
0: rate. Excellent. So so that there's sort of our foundation, and we're going to explore this again over the next couple of weeks because, as you can tell, this is a a complex topic so So Jerry, you were sitting with Kurt at the the, the conference with Bruce Barry, and I wonder just kind of how you uh well, how's this informed sort of your thinking uh just just kind of at the beginning of our journey into this uh topic here
2: so um, really. This is a complicated physiologically based explanation for homeostasis. Mm-hmm. Right? So basically, when we're in a homeostatic state, you could define that as an autonomic state that fosters the, in some ways, the uh, focus on our internal needs. With, without significant external demands right as external demands increase we move out of this homeostatic state to be able to respond to external demands mm-hmm. so you have this balance and when that when homeostasis is working well an individual is able to move to be able to respond to external demands then return back to a resting state right? Heart rate variability is a way to measure that process, simple, sim, a simple explanation for a very complex um, process. But what's important is, is that when we are exposed to trauma, and we have low heart rate variability, which means we have a a lack of ability to effectively return back to a homeostatic state, we stay hyper aroused in those states. And when you're hyper aroused, it not only is changing your physiology, but it's also changing your perception of the environment. And so you're much more likely to be hypersensitive to threat cues, which then increases your need to be in this state, right? And so, when we're doing interventions, we have to have interventions that not only change behavior, or not only change our psychology, but also address our physiology, right? And really, that's where trauma works, so, you can have some sort of sophisticated mechanisms to measure this, but when you get really good, if you listen to some of the somatic sensory uh-huh. therapies, what they get really good is watching physiological signs that the sympathetic nervous system is being activated. So things like eye dilation, changes in facial color, tone of voice, right? so body movements, when we're aware of and understanding this physiology, we can be much more sensitive so that <clears throat> we can help the individual in a therapy or in a relational interaction. What we want is for them to be able to stay in their window of tolerance. And when they're in their window of tolerance, they have a nice balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic arousal. When we're outside, we either have a high sympathetic arousal or we have a different branch of the parasympathetic nervous system that we'll talk about at a different time, which pushes us into hypoarousal. So understanding these concepts is gonna help when we are doing actual therapy or interacting because we can begin to watch for the signs these changes in states, right? So that's really what I hope people get out of this is unless you're going to be like Kurt and go get really excited and go in, they'll delve into the research, we need to understand these systems in order to be effectively working with clients.
0: Right. (laughs) <laughs> hey, can you give, for folks that might not have been in previous episodes, just a quick definition of homeostasis? Because I think that's a, that's a key term that you mentioned there that not everybody might know. So
2: homeostasis is, is a term that talks about when we're able to allocate resources effectively to health and restoration of our internal states. It's a resting state as opposed to when we have to allocate resources to respond to the external environment or when there's really threat from internal, so illness or something else going on. So homeostasis is a resting state that we, we have, that we return to. It's a balanced state that we return to.
0: So would that, that would then be the parasympathetic nervous system if we're putting some of the pieces together? Well,
2: actually, actually, a resting state, you never only have parasympathetic. As, as Kurt said, you have variability, right? So all all biological systems work on feedback loops, right? So as the sympathetic nervous system gets aroused, the parasympathetic nervous system gets going, and it keeps it in balance. It's, it's not you need to be able to have both this So it's a, it's a rhythmic process, basic rhythmic process that balances out as opposed to one is up and one is off,
0: Yeah.
2: right? So homeostasis is this ability to use this rhythmic phasic process to keep us in balance. Mm -hmm. And when we get out of balance due to say we're hungry or we're thirsty, or in some ways we, we feel like we need to do something. That balance gets shifted and we get more engaged in our sympathetic nervous system, but we still have pa- parasympathetic activity keeping us somewhat within our window of tolerance. If the demand gets too great, the parasympathetic system gets shut down and then you get hyperarousal. To kind of look at. Does that make sense?
1: That basic nature is why it's heart rate variability.
0: All ah, right, that's what I was going to ask. So, so, the variability is between parasympathetic and sympathetic Exactly. So,
2: activation. on that, when, when we breathe in, we're activating our parasympathetic nervous system. When we breathe out, we're activating our parasympathetic nervous So, sympathetic in, parasympathetic out. So what would happen when we get stressed with our breathing? Get shorter. So you're getting higher and higher activation. Mm-hmm. So what intervention is, is to get people to focus on their breathing and have longer exhalations, and you're activating your parasympathetic nervous system.
0: Great. Excellent. I think that is a very concrete way to end this very complex introduction to this. So, um, welcome to the the simple thing that is uh, trauma, <laughs> and, and I think this, you know, is a great way to 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 again start this piece. Kurt, do you want to give us maybe just a little bit about an intro for? I know we got two articles, which I will. Uh, put up on, on this week's uh, podcast at uh, traumainformedlens.org in case people wanna to read those ahead of time. Uh, but McKee, just kind of give us an intro to, to where, where we're gonna to explore this further uh, next yeah. week and, and going forward.
1: Yeah, next week, the, the articles that I picked next week were some demonstration articles that show some of the differences in this measure heart rate variability across different groups or different populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, and there are a couple of those. So that's one that's really a pretty interesting one. And it also highlights some of the interesting changes that can happen to our our autonomic nervous system and our HPA axis um, in a prolonged exposure to stressful events. So there's some interesting things out of those two articles. We'll go into some other ones and I'm saving some of the ones in the last for you, Matt, uh, that I think you'll really, really love. Uh, we have some, uh, there's some around differential responsiveness across people with different, uh, different uh, behavioral health diagnoses or different responses to intervention based on their heart rate variability measure. And finally, we'll kind of wrap it up with a couple of articles related to predicting connections between therapists and clients based on heart rate variability. Okay, cool. There's some really, really cool things out there that this measure gives us, a, it's a really robust measure in for, in predicting a lot of different positive outcomes.
0: Awesome. And, and I've, I've uh, looked at the first two articles and, you know, again, while this might seem complex and I think, you know, especially during the holidays, I, I know you uh, a lot of people are dealing with a lot anyway, but I, I really encourage you to look at this because even though we might not be at the place where we can get a a whole lot of uh technology on folks at this point i I think this really uh, what i found about the polyvagal theory and and this thinking around this is it really it gives the why to so much why we have talked about coping skills since the beginning of psychology you know why some of our interventions might work in certain situations and not in others and and so there's a, a lot even though this this does get pretty deep. I think once you get the basic understanding of sympathetic, parasympathetic, the variability pieces, which these articles also help you out with, uh, there's some really good there's some gold here to hold on to and I think uh will inform more and more of our thinking as again, maybe we start to use this technology in different ways moving forward. So very cool. Well, please join us again. I'll put those articles um, on uh with this episode. I'll also put them for next week's as well, if, if you miss that. But um, please join us next week and we'll, we'll even dig a little deeper. So uh, thanks everybody for joining us. Kurt, Jerry, as fun as always, and I'm excited to uh, nerd out with you both again soon. So everybody have a great day. Joining us for this episode. If you're interested in more information about HRV, please visit us at optimalhrv.com. Also, if you visit optimalhrv.com, you'll be able to sign up for our email list and download our free ebook, Healing with HRV. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.